Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Football and Feelings, the podcast that uses football as a common interest to get people to open up about uh, the ups and downs that they experience in life. It's been a f- it's been quite a while since uh, since I've done one of these episodes, but I'm back today uh, doing an episode with Malaysian international Junior Eld Stahl. He plays in Thailand at the moment. Uh, he's played in England non-league before moving to Malaysia to play professionally. Um, he's a really nice guy, top guy. He's got a, a YouTube channel now called The Honest Footballer, which I'd, I'd recommend you search it on the socials uh, and on uh, YouTube as well. He talks about the ups and downs of his career. You, you get to see a, a really unique insight that a lot of players don't want to show you, um, that, what it's like not being picked, what it's like chasing contracts. When you're alone and you're leaving your family, you've got to make sacrifices and, and things like that. Um, so yeah, as you can you can probably tell, a lot of our a lot of our thoughts combine here. Um, yeah, it was a, definitely a, a collaboration that needed to be done. Um, so yeah, so I'll leave it there. Enjoy the podcast. Cheers. Okay, Junior, thank you so much for joining me today on the Football and Feelings podcast. Uh, we're in very different time zones, but I'm, I'm buzzing. We've been able to get it in. Yeah, cheers for that, mate. Yeah, sorry I was a bit late. Obviously, I was trying to rush back from training. For only 45 minutes, but that's on, entire time. That's early, so I'm technically on time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is true. I, I want to start with a, a very simple but uh, but important question. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, mate. I'm good. I'm good. Um, obviously, I'm in pre-season now, and the season was going to start in August, and because of COVID, it's been pushed back. So like a one month pre-seasons ended up being a two month pre-season. So mm. I'm feeling it a little bit now. Um, you know, it's very strenuous sort of doing so much. There's only so much of pre-season you can do before sort of getting bored and, you know, football without actually match time and game time. You know, that's what we train for. That's what we play for. So without the games and stuff, it's um, it's quite difficult mentally. But I mean, it's nice, you know, I, can, I, I could be in worse places. I'm right on the beach and... <laughs> Sun's nice. out, so <laughs> yeah, lovely stuff. And what's uh, what's the situation in, in Thailand with like playing in front of fans? Are fans allowed in stadiums yet? Or nah, nah. I mean, towards the back end of last season, we had twenty five percent capacity, which was nice. And then um, things were going well, to be fair. And then I don't know what sort of happened, but COVID started peaking again, sort of last two months, um, and they've just locked it back down. So obviously, restaurants and stuff are shut. Can't go out. Um, and then now it's back to closed games. And I think they're in discussion at the minute because the league's going to start on the 3rd of December. But I think they're discussing putting it in a bubble. So that's going to be, again, a bit a bit tough. Yeah, Full on lockdown, just, just football. So um, we'll see, mate. We'll see. I think they're sort of, I think they've got a meeting on Monday next week to, to finalise it. So we'll see. Fair enough. Yeah, let, let, we'll find that soon. Let's get into it then. Starting with the uh, carrying on with the focus on football. What's your first memory of the sport? Was it always a big thing for you growing up? Uh, growing up, I was actually more into tennis growing up. Um, so I played tennis a lot at school and it was sort of going from school. Obviously, I grew up in Sweden for five years before moving to England. I sort of moved to England when I was in year one at school and I was sort of brought up on quite a lot of tennis. And then as soon as I moved back to England and sort of joined school in England, everyone was speaking about football and everyone had like local teams and stuff. And I felt a bit left out. So I said to my dad, I was like, oh, can I join the local, local team, etc." And he brought me down to a local club called Guildford Saints in Surrey. Um, and that was my first memory. I started off in the C team in Guildford Saints and then worked my out to the A team. And um, yeah, that was my first memory, sort of like seven aside, going there on a Saturday, playing Sundays. It was good. Class. And by, by the time you were, like you said, by the time you were like nine or ten, weren't you living in your third country by that point? Yeah, so I was born <laughs> in Malaysia and then moved to Sweden um, for five years. And then when I was six or seven, I, I moved to England. Yeah, so it was a uh, bit of transitioning was was weird. But, you know, you're, you're at such a young age, you sort of don't really, don't really think about it, to be fair. But it was good for me because, you know, I, I learned all different cultures and 
by the time I was in England, I managed to, you know, I could speak uh, English, Swedish and Malaysian as well. So it was nice. Yeah, that's not bad. Yeah, not, not bad at all that. Do you... <laughs> Multilingual. Do you, yeah, just a bit, yeah. Do you sway towards like identifying as, as one of these nationalities? Because like, I've seen you supporting the Swedish oh. national team, the English team, but also you're yeah, playing for Malaysia. Mad. Yeah, no, it's hard, mate. It's hard. I'd say, I'd say I support Sweden. Sweden is num- my number one, my number one country that I support. Um, but they don't tend to do too well. So it's good to have, Eng- well, England have only sort of recently started doing well, but <laughs> yeah. it's good to have both. But if, if Sweden were to play England, I'd always support, I'd always support Sweden first. Mm, fair enough, fair enough. Well, are you? Is there a language that you're best in out of the three? English, yeah. English goes, English, English yeah. number one. I saw, I lost my Malaysian for ages. Um, it, was, it was funny when I was growing up, I, saw, I was embarrassed of like being able to speak languages. I don't know why, what it was in school. Like I was just embarrassed to be able to, you know, to tell him, oh, yeah, I can speak Malaysian and stuff. I was embarrassed mm. to be like from another country. Um, it, it was weird. I think, you know, social, um, socially in school and stuff, and you're scared of being bullied and stuff, all this, you know, stuff comes into it. So I sort of stopped speaking Malaysian for, for a long time and I sort of forgot how to speak it. And it was only until I moved back to Malaysia to play professionally was when I was like, I need to pick this back up again. So I can understand what the other players are saying about me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's uh let's start with your your youth career and like earlier playing days. You played with with Oldershot, Reading. How did you find it coming through like these sort of youth systems? Is that was it like a brutal environment as a kid or was it still still pretty fun? Um, nah, for me and my youth career was was really good. You know, I had great coaches I was working with, um, especially at Aldershot. Reading was sort of a, it was a stint, it was more of a trial sort of stint mode that I had there which is obviously a lot more competitive and but my time at Auburn shot you know it was great memories you know I had great great youth team coaches even before the shot um for a team in Bertham um a, a coach called Dean Dean Hollands you know he he loved he just loved football you know I think it's one of the good things about England grassroots football is you get coaches who who, who literally love and breathe football and they're doing anything to to get the boys on the Saturday mornings and stuff and put on great sessions and you know that's how you develop as a player to to enjoy it first before you know anything else and obviously then I had my dad who who do extra sessions with me after schools etc it's like only use your left foot so mm-hmm. on I remember there were sessions where he'd say I was only allowed to use my left foot on a few on a few sessions <laughs> just to make sure I was both footed but you know no it was all um great memories you know competitive obviously very competitive in England because you've got such a number of, of players that are trying to break through the footballing pyramid. Um, so it's always difficult, but, you know, I relished, you know, I relished in school and I enjoyed it a lot, mm. um, which, which is obviously like the main thing I'd say as any young kid is to, to enjoy it and love, love it before, you know, before anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can tell it's dinner time in your household, by the way. I can hear, hear the plates being knocked about. <laughs> yeah, no, Daisy's <laughs> eating her food, her salad in the background. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, in that, Stop eating. <laughs> in those years, were you able to like to take your studies seriously, or was was like education a big thing in your household, or was you more focused on a, on a career in football? No, I had quite a good balance. To be fair, like my parents were very supportive on on either side, and you know the school I went to, um, you know, I represented my county, etc. At the time, and you know, there's obviously the perks of being able to leave leave class and, mm, and start yeah. the training early. Yeah, waving like, to oh, your mates oh, off. Yeah, see you later, mate. I'm <laughs> off. You know, it's always a good thing. But you know, I think I had quite a good balance, and I was quite lucky enough to, you know, my parents were very supportive on both sides, and as long as I had a good balance between both, they were happy. So as long as I didn't let my school sort of, you know, I didn't, I wasn't excellent at school, but, you know, I managed to pass at least 10 GCSEs, which I don't mm. know, I don't know if that means anything now, but, you know, <laughs> so many entrepreneurs and stuff. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And you were playing at, um, at Slimbridge in non-league before, like you said, you decided to take the opportunity to play in Malaysia. Now, a lot of players... Uh, are more open to the idea of playing abroad these days, I think. And and the difference in interest can be crazy. Like you could be playing in front of, I don't know, like 40,000 people in one country, but then 200 in another, just depending on on the football culture and how, how it pans out with the locals and like the different levels that they have. So how did this, how did this opportunity come about? Yeah, funny story, actually. So after all the shot, I, I joined Farnborough first team and I was sort of in and out with the first team in the reserves and I took a big injury to my um, left ankle. I tore like three ligaments. I was 18 at the time and I was like, oh, like, it was getting at a stage in my life where 
either stop football and start working full-time and trying to make money, you know, by labouring, etc. A lot of my mates were doing, like, getting electrician um, scholarships, etc. And my mum actually enrolled me at a uni. Um, so she enrolled me at a university, um, UWE, Bristol of University, um, without me, so without me knowing. Um, and I thought I was going to Bristol UWE and I ended up, we were driving to Bristol and then we took like a detour and it was to, towards Gloucester and I was like, hang on a minute, like, where are we going? And it was a sports, it was sort of sports university. So Bristol U, they've got like a, a sports hub at Hartbury, which is near Gloucester, which they focus on football, rugby and equestrian. So it's like a sports university where you do your degree and you're training full time as a professional. So, you know, so the thought, I'll get into is, the equestrian unless it's time, it's time for that. Yeah, yeah. I'll get on the back of a horse. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I, tu- I turned up at Hartbury, man. I was like, I was so surprised at the facilities, the pitches, you know, carpet. And, um, so I enrolled at Hartbury university as part of the football scholarship program. And, um, they've got three teams, um, you know, A, B and C first, seconds and thirds and you sort of work your way up and you know we were training five times a week playing against different academies um, and then you can have the choice to play for a Saturday team as well so Slimbridge had a good relationship with the university um, and it was like five minutes down the road from where I was living in Gloucester um, so I played for Slimbridge on a Saturday and then Hartbury University on on the um, on the week- on the weekdays and then on the first year of Hartbury you had to do like a work experience um, sort of get your hours in and my mum again said why don't you go to Malaysia and you know we've got a good family friend Scott Laurentshaw who's got his own sort of sport and tourism business over there so you know he can take you and your mate Max and you can go over there sort of have a holiday he'll write your hours off you know say you've done 300 <laughs> hours and you've probably only done two um, yeah exactly so I went over there done this uh, done our hours had a great holiday and Scotty said to me do you fancy playing futsal one night, you know, a couple of guys have you've got a futsal game to much fans are coming. I was like, yeah, why not? So me and Max, my mate, we played and um, he turns around to me after goes, oh, mate, you've got a bit, haven't you? You can play, can't you? That's my best Australian accent right there. Um, <laughs> you can play. He said, do you fancy, have you ever thought about coming to Malaysia? And I said, nah, not a chance. Like, what, Malaysia? Is there even a league in Malaysia? <laughs> he said, look, come to the game tonight at Sabah. We've got a Super League game they were in the Super League at the time and just get a feel of it and you can see turn up at the stadium like you said 30,000 fans I was like what on earth is this mm. you know and the standard weren't bad like I looked at it and I was like this is actually a, a not bad standard and I fancied myself and he said do you still have your Malaysian passport and I said yeah I did at the time because my mum managed to keep my Malaysian passport since I was um, very young so I was very very fortunate with that so I went back and Scott said back to uni and the, um, the transfer window in Malaysia starts in January. So the season starts in Feb and then ends in November. So it works sort of differently to the UK. So it's a go back to uni. So I went back in September, sort of had four months there, spoke to the sporting director, um, Tom Radcliffe, said, look, I might have an opportunity to go play professional abroad. Um, will I be able to defer my course to then come back and do my, my exams, etc." later? He said, yeah, absolutely. You know, because it's obviously a good thing for the university to have a player um, go and sign pro so got the call in Jan he said you've got two weeks two weeks to come out you'll have a trial packed my bags mate and I was gone um, only packed one bag didn't think anything much of it um, had a week trial and that was it signed my, signed my six month deal first pro um, you know played straight away and sort of moulded in after four six months so I got called up to the national team played Chelsea played Barcelona in the summer <laughs> and then that was it that was yeah it was just so crazy yeah, how quick it happened to the deep end that isn't it mate literally it was so so crazy how it happened but you know when you're a young boy now I spoke to a lot of my mates and stuff like my agent you know Scott then became my agent at the time and he said um, you know you can either be a, a small fish in a big pond in the UK um, or be a big fish in a small pond and you know at the time I was turning 21 I was 20 and you know there was like you know, after Heartbreed, do I then go into league football, conference football and try to break through, you know, like a lot of my mates are? Or do I take this opportunity and, and chuck myself in a deep end and, you know, go heads on with it? And I think in life, when you take these opportunities, you know, they'll always come come back around for you in a positive way. Yeah, yeah, that's that sounds like it would have been quite a difficult decision to make at, at some points, though. But I, I imagine... Malay culture was something you were sort of quite familiar with, um, like you said, like you mentioned. So how did you deal with that transition to 
to to play in, in the UK to playing over there? Were there differences in football culture that maybe you didn't you didn't realise? Yeah, like obviously in the in the mannerisms of training and stuff, you know, it's, it's, I'd say it's a lot less competitive in training. You know, I remember in training in the UK, I'd fight my mates and stuff. You know, <laughs> even in keepball, you know, my best mates, you know, were getting scraps and stuff. But I think the culture in Malaysia is a lot more relaxed in training. You know, they don't sort of give 100, 110%. The games, I'd say, uh, are a lot less physical, but a lot more technical. So, you know, it's, 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 it's your touches have to be better, et cetera. And it's a lot more technical and you're playing against good foreigners, but it's a lot, a lot less physical. And I think that's where I sort of built this stature in Malaysia of being this, you know, CDM sort of, brick house that used to just smash people <laughs> <laughs> yeah i imagine like physically i imagine there was a difference between like you and the average sized average sized malay player yeah exactly 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 <laughs> that um, and you were one of the first um or one of few at the time the players of mixed heritage to break through into the malaysian national team was that a difficult uh, a difficult process because i mean i imagine it's very different now like malaysia is quite a multicultural place no, mate, like, um, it was horrible. My first experience with the national team was was not nice at all. Um, there was me, myself and Brendan Gann were the first two to sort of come through. And Brendan came on a, a little bit later. So the first call-up, I was by myself and I couldn't really speak the language. And, you know, I went into the digs um, for the summer. We had like a summer tour. We went to Japan for a month and then we played, obviously, Barca and Chelsea. So I remember getting my call. Um, the gaffer called me up. He said, look, I'm going to call you up for the summer. Etc. And, you know, I was buzzing. I was absolutely, I didn't really know what to expect, you know, national football, etc. So I was buzzing. But I remember turning up to the digs and no one would speak to me. And we had rooms, so we'd share the rooms. We'd have three people in the room and I was by myself for the first week. And I remember boys coming into the room, you know, that were checking into the digs and they would literally open the door, look at me and just shut the door. And I was like, whoa, like, hang on a minute. So like, I was literally by myself for like the first two weeks. It was only until a player called Ruben, who could speak English, came came in a bit later because I think he was away and he came in a bit later and he came straight into the room, you know, made me feel at home. But I remember my first couple of sessions, they were trying to smash me. Like, like you could tell they were really trying to like injure me and stuff, you know. Um, and they went to away to Japan and me being quite, like, I'm very vocal on the pitch, like, you know, coming from England, like it's one of the things I learned as a young, you've got to speak, you've got to talk. Mm. And I'd scream at the boys, but not in a, you know, not in a bad way, but like, you know, even little things like, come on, lads, come on, you can do better than that. But they see it differently. They see it as like criticism. Gaffer had to have a meeting um, solely just for me. And he had to explain to the boys that, you know, my culture's a bit different. And when I'm shouting and stuff on the pitch, it's not in a negative way. And I just remember sitting there like, oh my God, these boys must <laughs> hate me. Absolutely <laughs> hate me. Yeah, I only told them to press. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I remember it was my, when I first made my debut and I had, I had a decent game to be found my debut. I started getting a little bit of respect from like the big boys and, um, you know, it was it was a weird vibe because it was a bit like, you know, they speak about the England team when um, you had obviously Skulls, Beckham, mm. Lampard, etc. Yeah. And they always ask, why, why didn't that generation win anything? And there was them stories of people going into the digs and everyone was separate. You know, you had like Chelsea on one table, Arsenal on one table. It was a lot like that. So you had these these players, like legend players that have been there for years and that, you know, they had their own culture, they had their own team and anyone new that came in, they were a bit like, nah, jog on. Do you know what I mean? Mm, yeah, yeah. No, I just remember saying, I remember going into the, crying and going into the gaffer's office and I wanted to leave. Crying, called my agent up saying, I don't want to be here. Like, I'd rather just go back to, to my club and just, you know, have my holiday, have my time off. Um, you know, I don't feel good and my, Gaffer at the time, Roger Coppell said, look, just stick it out. Um, I understand, look, just give it a go. And my agent at the time said, yeah, as well, just try to stick it out. And yeah, I managed to stay. And obviously then I played Chelsea and Barca, things changed. <laughs> <laughs> how how different is it now then for like younger lads? Like now you're a, a more senior player in that Malaysian squad. How different is it for them coming in if, if, if they're of a, of a similar background? Mate, massively, massively different. You know, you've got so many mixed boys in the in, in the setup now, and it's a it's a good contrast between the locals and the mixed heritage boys, um, and it's not divided as much, nowhere near as much as what it was before, and it feels more like a team now, a lot more as a team. You know, I, I introduce initiations now for the boys that come in. That nice. now, that was never a thing, so you never had to sing a song or anything. So I introduce initiations, just you know, little things like that that just build team around team team spirit within the camp. Um, and, you know, we've got a coach, um, Tan, who 
is very multicultural, you know, and he, he, he makes sure the boys gel together. It's just a whole different vibe now. It's just a whole, whole, complete different vibe for anyone coming in, which is good. Has that changed it on the pitch as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the results speak for itself, you know. Like, like we just missed out on the World Cup qualification this mm. year um, by like two points and we've got such a strong group of lads. And I think it's changing the Malaysian League, you know, there's a lot more talent coming through into the league with your foreigners, with the mixed heritage boys and players getting passports and so on. Yeah, yeah. And in 2018, uh, you decided to retire, returning to the UK after many years in Malaysia. Can you talk us through what was sort of going on in your career at that point and how were you dealing with with life in general to lead you to, to making that decision? Because I imagine that couldn't have been easy to to step away from the game. Yeah, it was difficult, mate. Like I've, when I first signed in Malaysia, I signed for a sort of small team, um, Sarawak, and then I managed to obviously sign for one of the biggest teams in Southeast Asia, Johor. And I was there for six seasons and, you know, the first two seasons were great. But when you're at this play, at, at Johor, you know, it's it's all about winning. Um, there's a lot of pressure, you know, even a draw is counted as a loss. Um, and it was a great, you know, it's a great, great club. The facilities and stuff is an absolute joke. Like, I guarantee even Premier League clubs, some Premier League clubs won't have the facilities that Johor have. Um, and what the Prince has done for Johor is amazing. But for me personally, I was at a bit of a torrid time because I was riddled with injuries. I had my slip disc, had that operation, come back. Like, I'd tear my quad, I'd come back from now, I'd have tender nights on both my knees. Mm. Um and it was just a bit of a torrid time. And it was, you know, I was there for six long years and every season people would ask, our oh, juniors not playing again, bench warmer, etc." But in the background, I was just dealing with so much like stress. I was alone, um, you know, and I had great, a great, great contract, which I'm, which is obviously I'm very grateful for, but you know, money doesn't buy everything. Um, I was away from my friends, my family for, for so long and, you know, coming in from games where I could barely walk, because of my back, you know, having to take cortisone injections into my spine just to be able to play. And, you know, it sort of got to the end of my, came to the end of my tether mentally. Um, there was only so much, you know, I could take and I just wanted to go home and just have a break and be with my friends and be with my family and just sort of refresh my mind mentally completely out of football, um, which was... You know, you said it, it, it was a difficult decision at the time, but I felt like it was the right decision because I felt like if I'd, I would have carried on and, and left Johor and signed to another team, I, I wouldn't have had that same spark and love that I had coming back into football again. I felt like I needed to fall in love with the game again, you know. I, I sort of fell out of love completely, you know. I was, didn't want to go into training because I knew I couldn't, you know, like on the sidelines watching the team. I was just bored and, and sick really really sick mentally and you know when you start you know like I said to you when you're a kid you, you, you love football you play every day every day Saturday Sunday Monday you know you don't care and then when it got to a stage when I decided you know I didn't even feel good going into training it was when I was like nah like I can't do this I can't do this I need to go home and, and be with my family and my friends Was there anything that you were scared of though when you were when you're leaving football when you're coming back home where it was, yeah, I know you said it was, you felt like it was the right thing to do, but was there anything sort of sitting in the back of your mind? Nah, do you know what? Nothing, nothing like that. I was, ex I was so excited to take a break. I was so mm. excited to take a, take a break and, and start new opportunities. You know, per my personality is I, I like to, to have fresh starts and, and go and, you know, have new opportunities. And I decided to, you know, try business and have a business venture back home, which was going really well pre-COVID. And then, you know, COVID hit and I based my life on like five pillars in life. So you know, relationships, families, um, your health, wellness and families and, and like money, obviously finance. And slowly after when I, after I retired, these pillars started coming down one by one without me noticing. And then when I lost my last pillar um, was when I realized that, oh my God, like what have I done? You know, it sort of makes you look back and reflect on all the money I spunked, you know, on stupid stupid stuff but when I look back at it I'm glad I did it because you know you learn from these mistakes and you know after two years of thinking I was financially secure of investments etc losing all this money I was like wow like I'm so far off where I want to be um, and I basically had nothing I went from having everything in my life to having nothing absolutely nothing 
you've I've heard you speak about before working on site after like after that contrast from yeah. like playing professionally to then going to back to work working on site that that whole that whole situation I imagine they were that was a very bitter pill to swallow but equally do you think it like do you think it grounded you at all because like you said you you didn't realize those pillars were falling down did you almost sort of I know it's obviously not ideal circumstances but did you need them to come down to realize that there was work to do one million percent. I feel like everything that happened in my life definitely happened for a reason because, you know, especially my time at Johor, I definitely lost myself in the sense of I was going out, I was spending my money, I lost who my real mates were, you know, I was making mm. friends with people that wanted me to spend money, you know, oh yeah, mate, come to this club, you know, we'll get the tables, etc., all this sort of stuff. And I was in that world for a good five years, you know, and I was so lost into what was important in my life, which was, you know, my relationship, my family my friends that actually mean something to me. Um, so especially when I lost everything, I realized who was actually there for me, like really, really there for me. And then, you know, my mate was the one who offered me, you know, this job on site because, you know, it was good money. He didn't have to, you know, I had no laboring skills whatsoever. And he was, he put me on, you know, a good wedge, good, well enough to, to be able to survive back in, in the UK. My best mate put me up in his house in the room, you know, like these are the things, you know, my ego had to take a battering because I was so egotistical and I lived with my ego and the ego can be your worst enemy. You know, I, w I didn't think about anything before. And um, when I managed to, you know, I had complete ego death, you know, I was living in my mate's flat. These, this is a guy that they've seen that they used to look up to in the sense of, they used to look up to in, in the sense of, you know, you know, Junior will look after us, he'll pay for this, he'll pay for that. And I literally couldn't. And like, I had to take that step back and realise what was important mm. in my life. And it definitely grounded me, mate. It definitely grounded me. Not to say I enjoyed it, but it definitely yeah, grounded me. Yeah, of course, me. yeah. So how, how did you start to like build, your, build yourself back up things? I imagine like your morale would have been pretty low. Like you said, your ego's just been battered. But one, like your ego being battered, that's one of those things sometimes you don't realise that's a good thing until like mm. later down the line. So how, how did you eventually start to, to build up your own self-confidence and eventually make the decision to start playing again? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a breakup that absolutely killed me. The breakup from my last relationship, was, she was my last pillar that I had left, basically. And mm. I didn't realise. And then when, when she'd left, I was gone. So I moved into my mate's house and... You know, I was absolutely, this is before I started working on site. I literally, I did not know what I was doing in my life. And I remember going for a run and, you know, only a few people know this. I ran past the train, the Isha train station and I was on the, I was on the bridge at the train station and there was a split second, a split second where I thought, fucking hell, like I've lost everything. What, the f what have I done? Like, is it, is it really worth me living anymore? Like, I can't believe I've done this. And then I jogged back home to Ollie's house, Ollie Clements. I jogged back to his and I sat underneath a tree for like a good hour, good, good hour, and just reflected on everything, like everything. Um, and then I started working and I made that decision then, then, then and there to start working with a life coach, Josh Connolly, who was recommended to me before from my, one of my good friends, Ollie Scott. Um, and he's amazing, like completely amazing. And I remember messaging him, think, telling him about my suicidal thoughts. And he said, I don't think I'm the, you know, I don't think I'm the guy that you should be speaking to about this because, you know, he's a life coach. He's not, you know, someone that deals with, with suicide, et cetera. He said, there is, here's a number that you can speak to. And I said, nah, like, I want to speak to you. Like, so I felt comfortable with him. You know, I knew him from before and I felt, I knew that he could help me with what he's been through in his past, you know, and where he's come. Yeah. <clears throat> so I started working with him and, um, from there, from then forward, you know, he sort of built my confidence up. We stripped back everything. We stripped back everything from like my childhood trauma to what I went through in my relationship, why I did the things I did. And it was never, I didn't blame myself. It was all reasoning to why I did these things. And it was important for me to understand why I did these things in my past and to understand why I did them, write them down on paper and forget, you know, forgive myself for these things and start to rebuild myself slowly, step by step. Um, started working with him, you know, started working on site, grounding myself with, you know, real humans, real stories, um, you know, seeing my friends again, you know, starting to enjoy football at Met Police again. And I had a conversation with Volley Clements, my, one of my best friends, and I said, I'm only 28. Like, what, what, is, what is stopping me from going back to, to playing full time, you know, mm. in, in Malaysia? 
and that was when I made the decision to call Scott and I said, look, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. And he said, you know, it's, it's difficult. You've had two years out. I said, listen, I'm coming back. Just give me an opportunity, get me a chance and I'll, I'll prove you wrong. Um, so yeah, he said, look, fly to Malaysia in, in November. So I flew out, done my quarantine, spoke to my old club, Johor, um, you know, reluctant to take me back. Loads of clubs reluctant to take me back. And it was sort of, again, like a kick in the teeth, like, fuck it, like, come on, what I've done for, you know, mm. the country, et cetera, for the national team, like, um, you know, just give me a chance. I was probably in the best shape of my life as well. You know, I'd worked so hard in this sort of six month period to, to be in the best shape to, to come back. You know, I worked with Wally and another PT back home. Um, so I knew I was ready because I knew I had that feel, that fire in my belly again to, to have that opportunity. So yeah, it was good. Let's. I want to rewind a little bit there. Back to you said you were you were by on the on the bridge over the train station, over the train yeah. track. Sorry, that split second where you like you you felt suicidal. What was what sort of thoughts were going through your through your head at that point? Was there like anything specific that kept coming up? And 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 what? There's not really a way of asking this politely. What what stopped you doing it? My thoughts were I was just I was just blaming myself for everything. Everything was blamed. Like I was just blaming myself mm. for losing my money. I was blaming myself for, you know, my relationships with my family and relationships with my, my girlfriend at the time. Like I was blaming myself for losing everything. And I was just thought there's nothing left. Like, you know, I've got no one around me. Like I thought in my head, I was like, no one loves me around me. Like, you know, I've, I've fucked everything up. I'm always going to keep fucking up. And then it was just like a... Because I, I was jogging, I was listening to a, like a YouTube inspirational video, um, you know, one of them cringy, like cringy ones. But, um, you know, it, it actually helped me because I was listening to what Eric Thomas was saying um, at the time in my head, in my, in my headphones. And it just made me spell on like, nah, this, this, this can't be the end. Like, this can't be the end. I know there's so much more and there has to be more reason into why this happened. And I'm a firm believer of everything does happen for a reason. Yeah, fair enough. So now it seems like you're you're really eloquent and you speak about these things really well. I imagine you weren't always like that. Has the has nah. the honest footballer has 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 doing that served that purpose for you? Has that helped helped to do that? Yeah, I was um, a lot of my friends will, will tell you that I was I always had a stigma about mental health um, in the sense of I never really believed in it. I think mm. being an athlete and being in sports, you're sort of built around having, you know, such strong mental thoughts and being able to block out any, any emotions on game day, et cetera, to be able to perform. And you sort of bring that into everyday life, um, which is quite difficult to switch, switch out of because that's the things I'll do. I'll switch off any emotion and I'll be like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm cool. Like there's nothing wrong with me. Like there's absolutely nothing wrong with me. I'm fine. I'm mentally strong enough to deal with this. Yeah. But when you sort of bottle that up, it only builds up inside you without you realizing until one day, obviously, you know, like like I had the experience, it, it all comes out um, slowly. So I think the honest footballer was built upon me being honest about you know my emotions, my feelings during my playing time in football because that's what I, I never used to never used to do. Fans never yeah. used to be able to see how I felt after games and what things affect me, my injuries affect me, how comments could affect me, you know, how having a bad game could affect me mentally, being injured could affect me outside of football, you know. I think a lot of people think see athletes as robots with no emotion sometimes. Um, end of the day, we, we, we're working, you know, it's a job. And, you know, we still come home, we still have feelings and emotions. Yeah, and for anyone that doesn't know, uh, the honest football, like it is what it says on the tin. You document your ups and downs in a way that, like you said, players don't normally do. At what point did you decide that the honest football was going to be a thing? Like I know on one of the videos, you you say it was born in this hotel room wherever wherever you were. Was it was it literally like that, or is it something that you you? Yeah, built, no, you built it was like. Yeah, obviously, I spoke out before I come back to football professionally. I spoke. I, I did a video on, on on mental health and the importance of of obviously your mental health outside of sport and especially life after sports. I don't think there's enough done for athletes outside of sports, outside of the sporting environment at home, et cetera. Um, and a lot of footballers don't speak about it, you know, um, and I've seen so many of my teammates go down so many routes and, you know, tell me they're fine when I know they're not um, and never being able to open up about it. So I was literally in quarantine for two weeks, as you can imagine, just documenting sort of my, my quarantine stand. I was like, do you know what? I want to do this differently this time. Like I want to be able to document my career so I can also look back at my career 
and you know have things to remember have things oh yeah i remember when that you know that was a really horrible time for me and i wanted fans to be able to see the real me and i think it's important because like i said before people didn't you know i also had this separation against the fans you know i'd almost had this mentality of like fuck the fans like you know but i'd never let them allow you know allow them to see who i fully am as a as, yeah. a, as a person not a player as a person outside of football so I wanted to document it and just you know I didn't really I just wanted to do it for myself at first and then it sort of picked up and I realised I was I realised I was helping young athletes and you know I've had lovely lovely messages from a lot of people um, with what I'm doing and it's it's been it's been great so far Mm, uh, yeah all the comments that you see on those videos are always always thoughtful they're always very kind and and supportive but you've uh i've heard you speak before and i know you deleted like social media accounts in the past because social media as we all know and and it was the case for yourself it's sort of detrimental to your your mental health and it it gives you a Mm. platform to uh it gives you a platform to sometimes chase your ego if that's the mind space that you're in at the time but Mm. Has the honest footballer changed your relationship with social media now? Massively, massively. My relationship with social media before was so poisonous um, where I didn't get validation from things that, you know, I seeked. Mm. I, I should have been getting validation from my friends, my family, my relationship at the time. But I was seeking validation from people I don't even know online, yeah. trying to front my lifestyle, get these likes, etc. And you know, when you're trying to live up to that lifestyle is when you start spending money stupidly and, you know, you're buying the cars, you're going out all these places, et cetera, all for the gram. And it's, it's, it can be so, so poisonous. And, you know, what social media taught me when I deleted, I had to come off social media for six months is doesn't it, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it is literally a facade. Social media is a complete facade. And unless you're trying, you know, you're documenting your, your true self on your social media, which you know, 99% of people probably don't do. And I can understand yeah. why, because of everything you see on social media, it's complete, it's, it's fake, you know, it is fake and it is dangerous. You know, I remember I'd spend hours on my phone and editing pictures and stuff when I'm at dinner, you know, with my friends, I'd just be on my phone, on my Instagram and, you know, DMing, etc. all this sort of stuff. Yeah. But obviously creating The Honest Footballer has given me a platform where I can share my true experiences and, and my true self and, you know, getting great feedback from people and stuff is has changed my relationship with social media completely and it you know it, it is all about how you use it you know you know you look at what's happened with the england players getting racially abused you know it's it's a platform if you're on where it give, it allows people to do this it allows people to do this and it, it can be a very dangerous place yeah you're absolutely right but I'm, I'm really glad that you don't have that toxic relationship with anymore with it anymore because yeah, yeah. yeah you're right it can be it's awful like you just like you're chasing this like online dragon you're like it's and it's never enough you get like i don't know whatever however many likes you get on a picture and the yeah. next one doesn't do as well you're like oh fuck what, what happened there but nah, then, yeah exactly. like you said it's when you step away from it you're like oh shit this actually isn't real life that <laughs> this it doesn't matter it's completely nah, irrelevant exactly what about since you started documenting your ups and downs? Um, I imagine for you, sometimes watching back uh, some of those clips, that it might not be the easiest of things. But what have you learned about yourself uh, since you started the Honest Footballer? Just being able to be more emotionally vulnerable with people, um, you know, and actually being not being scared of you know crying and not being scared to tell people what I'm actually feeling, mm. which is what I, I was before. I used to always be scared about being judged. Um, and it's definitely just taught me to be vulnerable and emotionally vulnerable. It actually makes you stronger as a human being if you can be vulnerable with with people, etc. And not, you know, try not to think so much about how people see you and how people perceive you. As long as you you're giving yourself a hundred hundred percent every day and you're giving your best to life, whatever that is, you know, no one's perfect. Um, then you know that's 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 all, all that matters really in, in my in my eyes. Yeah, I think a lot of people should uh, should take a leave from that book. I completely agree. But when you started started those vlogs, was it scary to open up? Because, like you said, yeah. you, you, you know, you're worried about what other people think of you, but you also know that that you should do it. You know that it will benefit you in the long run. Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes it's hard to to get every every bit of content. You know, when because mm. you know sometimes you just want to be by yourself and. You can't document it, you know, as, as much as I try to document everything, sometimes you can't document everything, you know, like yeah. with football, it's just your emotions are like this sometimes. Like you come in, you're coming home from a loss and maybe you might, you know, I might have had a shit game. Sometimes I just don't want to 
even think about anyone else and just just be by myself and not focus on myself. So it can be difficult at times, but you know, I try to get most, most, most of what I can. Um, obviously, when Gaffer's screaming his lungs out in the changing room at half time, can't get that in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll keep, keep my phone away for that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Since you've started like this, uh, I, don't, I don't know what you'd call it, maybe like a self-development journey, like you've like you sought professional help and you've started being a bit more open about these things. Do you have like any new habits that maybe help you with like your mental clarity and, and wellness? Like I've seen you speak about um, about meditating before. No, nah, it's, it's, it's a weird one. Like, I, I always had good habits. Always had good habits. Um, even back when I sort of lost myself, you know, I was always, you know, I was reading a lot, um, you know, meditating every day, you know, affirmations, etc. Always had good habits. I think habits is a, hard, it's, it's, it's a difficult one because to maintain good habits, you have to, you know, sometimes you have to be in a good environment. And when you're not in a good yeah. environment, you lose them habits, you know. So when I was back home in England and I lost my job, lost my, you know, lost my investments the shop went down my business etc my environment became very bad my relationship was toxic so then my environment became really bad and I, I wouldn't do the things that I knew I should be doing yeah. if that makes sense to that I know I know benefits me benefits my mental health you know breath work etc um, and then as soon as I started playing football again and I realized that I need to install these habits that I know I know these habits that help me etc um, but it's funny because now I'm in a good environment, you know, <laughs> it's so easy for me to do. And yeah. I always, I have spoke about it before and I understand, you know, when you go on these podcasts, etc. people say, Oh, you have to do these habits to get, to get better and so on. And it's so like in your face, but yeah. it's all about your environment that you're in at the time. And as long as, you know, one of the main things I think is important is to have the right people around you. You know, the right friends are always going to support you, your family that are going to support you through the bad times and the good times is probably the most key thing um, because you, are, you aren't going to be able to do the, ha- you know, the habits, daily habits every day. It's just not realistic. It's not realistic yeah. at all. Yeah, good, good point as well. Like a lot of, I've gone through stages where I've tried to try to instill so many like good habits, like in the hope that mm. it'll, it'll benefit me. And it, then it, that in itself becomes fucking daunting. Like it's exhausting yeah, to keep yeah. up with them. It's like you're caught yeah. in this like self-development fucking circle, like yeah, just running yeah, around. Yeah. It's, it's brutal. <laughs> and it's, it's even the same with, um, with like, like I've, I've meditated for, for like quite a few years. Like it's just like a normal part of my day now. Like even then sometimes, everyone talks about mindfulness sometimes being mindful is the last thing i want to do do you know what i mean like you yeah, can, yeah you're exactly. so you're so like trapped by your own mindfulness like you can't just let stuff go without um without noticing it it's yeah yeah pain in so the true. <laughs> <laughs> but and, anyway back onto your um that's my event over by the way um no, that's good vent <laughs> all you want mate vent all you want <laughs> back onto your your playing career because you're on this like an, an exciting path again since coming back to the game and i've but i've seen like the uh, one part of your vlogs where you're understandably struggling at one point in your hotel quarantine uh, coming into Thailand during Christmas and New Year, uh, uh, yeah. it seemed to really break you down. That's a difficult time to be away from from people, anyway. Let alone literally fucking locked up in a hotel. Is that is that the most difficult thing about playing abroad? Is it being a, being away from the people? Yeah, I think that time. Obviously, I'd done two weeks quarantine in Malaysia, and then last minute I got a deal in Thailand, and you know, I, I, again relished on a new opportunity. Never played in the Thai league, you know, new language, new culture. Um, and I went straight into another quarantine in Thailand. So I've done two weeks in Malaysia, then another two weeks, so a whole month in quarantine in a hotel. And obviously, like you said, it was, it was over Christmas and New Year's. And I think it triggered the past of being alone. And it's like, it, it was a massive trigger of like, oh, like, am I really doing this again? Like, you know, you know where it led you last time. Like you were alone, you were depressed, you were away from family and friends during these special, you know, these moments that people, obviously some people take for granted, you know, and I think... Being a player that goes abroad, yeah, it's probably one of the hardest things to, to obviously fathom is to be away from your family and friends. But I had that, like I said earlier, I had that little fire in my belly that sort of kept me going this time was like, nah, like I'm excited. This is this is one of the sacrifices I'm making for a long-term game. You know, mm-hmm. short-term sacrifice for a long-term game. So, I mean, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't easy, but it was sort of exciting at the time as well. 
What about uh, adjusting to uh, to life in Thailand? Then, like like we've said, Malaysia is very multicultural. You yourself, like you're from a mixed heritage background, has that has that helped you um, with that sort of transition into into this culture? Yeah, much easier, much easier this time around. Um, came straight in, gelled with the team, and mm. in Thailand, I'm sort of in Malaysia. I was seen as a local player, even though I was mixed heritage. I was still seen as a local player because I had the Malaysian passport. But in Thailand, I'm seen as a foreigner, so I'm I'm one of the foreign boys. So immediately, you feel a lot more respected by the boys, and you know you're there to, you know you're there to to make the team stronger and you make the team better. You know you, you're going to be one of the starting elevens, um, etc. So it was a uh, you know, a great feeling, and I, you know, I, I felt like I had to prove myself again, which was, which was also a very good thing, because I felt like if I would have gone back into the setup and sort of lived upon what I've done in the past, it wouldn't have been the same. So it was like I had a new opportunity to show myself and show who I am in Thailand, um, and then obviously that will then replenish in what goes on in Malaysia, because obviously they keep up with the, all the Malaysians playing abroad, etc. So. It was a great, great, great feeling to to obviously have my first season in Chombury. Love to see it. I used to go watch uh, go watch Thai Port. Um, back yeah, in, back yeah, in the good day. team, mate. Yeah. Good team. Yeah, good team. team. Yeah, big money. Like, yeah, a lot of money. I used to find it. I found it funny how involved like the owner was. Like she'd be on like on the sidelines, yeah, like, yeah. telling players Loves what to it, do. Yeah, properly. Yeah, but um, on on game day, especially in Thailand, with uh, with like many most games are evening games, right? How do you keep yourself? like calm and motivated throughout the day. But, you know, there's a, there's a balance there. You want to be relaxed, but you also you need to need to be full of energy when the time comes. Yeah, it's weird, obviously. Obviously, I went from, in Malaysia, they play a lot. In Malaysia, they play at nine. So 8.45, mm. nine in the, at night. And then obviously, I went back to England. We had like 12 o'clock kickoffs or three yeah. o'clock kickoffs. Had to get used to that. Um, and then going back to Thailand, they play a little bit earlier. So we start kickoffs normally at half six or half seven. So it's not too bad. Um, but... You know, just my my match day routine is I wake up when my body wants me to wake up, so I don't have an alarm on my match days. Um, I wake up, I go for a morning walk, um, then have like a stretch, meditate, and then I have like a, a breakfast, so like an oatmeal breakfast, and then I'll have a pasta bake, which I make the night before. Always make a pasta bake the night nice. before for game day. I don't know why, <laughs> I always do. And then I have my pasta bake at like four, and then, you know, by that time, I'm just chilling, mate. I'm literally just relaxing on game day, you know whether that's playing COS or just sitting on my sofa watching Netflix and then getting myself ready. I, t- I tend not to sleep in a day at all. Um, so I make sure I get you know, a good amount of sleep the night before, wake up when my body needs to, and then try not to nap in the day because I feel for my, for my body when I do nap in the day before games, I just feel lethargic going into, into match day. Mm-hmm. How different is your like pre-game sort of rituals compared to some of the tire players? I imagine like diet's going to be quite different from compared to what um you know yeah. what you're used to. Yeah, no, I don't know. I I, I haven't seen them outside of, of obviously <laughs> what they do on match days, but I can imagine they're a lot more probably relaxed on what they eat and stuff. Like oh, I need to make sure. I, turning 30 you know you should see my supplement jaw now I've got probably <laughs> 20 20 boxes of pills you know all my supplements I need to take etc and need to make sure I get my stretches in and make sure my body's ready you know even at training day I'm always in an hour and a half before training doing my mobility work before going into training you know some of the boys rock up 10 minutes before and just train fully I'm yeah, like yeah. mate listen you're going to feel that in a few years. All the young boys, they haven't got a clue. They're like, no, nah, I can turn up, just train. And so trust me, I used to be like that. And I'm, you know, ended up nearly being a cripple. <laughs> yeah, they're out on the singers straight after training. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, right, Junior, we've touched on, on loads of different topics here, but it's been a really interesting conversation. I want to round it off with uh, something I call long ball questions. These are basically an assorted mix of straight to the point questions, but I want us to po- focus a bit more on the, on the positive self because I know we've we've t- we spoke about a lot of deep stuff. It can be a bit draining yeah, to yeah, talk yeah. about. I know, you, I, I know how it is. Um, so yeah, I've just got three questions lined up for you. What would you say is the, the highest point in your career so far or a, a career highlight? A career highlight would be coming back to football, you know, mm. going against all odds. Um, people saying, nah, no chance he's coming back. He's lost it, no chance. Um, and then coming back, being in the first 11 at Chombury um, and then taking them to the final of the FA Cup, you know, we survived relegation. You know, I joined halfway through the season where they were bottom three and we had to survive relegation. And I think football is very important in that sense. Is I, I like to be a player that fights for something. 
whether it's relegation, you know, fight, I'd hate to be in a team where you're just mid-table every year, you know, nothing to fight for. So we survived relegation and then scoring um, in the semi-final against Buran, which is, you know, a massive, massive team in in um, in Thailand and scoring the winner and getting mm. Chonburi to the final was probably one of the highest moments of my career. It was amazing, class. amazing Unreal. feeling. Unreal stuff. Um, next question. What three things do you value most in your life? Now? Mm. I'd say my job, which is, you know, football, enjoying football, my friends and my family. Nice. Without yeah. a doubt, I'll, I'll, put, I'll put them first now, 100%. Great stuff. And and the last question, um, you can list as many things as you want here or it can just be one. Um, what do you love about yourself? <laughs> yeah. Oh, mate, let me just get my, my booklet out. I've got a long, <laughs> yeah. massive list. Yeah, here's one I made um, earlier. <laughs> I love about myself the opportunity, like the ability to to pick myself back up, pick myself back up when, when I'm down. I think that's one of my, my definite strong points. Um, because I've had a lot, of, I've had a lot of downs in my life, and I've always managed to come out on on, on the brighter side. Um, I'm very optimistic. I always believe, you know, things are always going to be. The grass will always be green on the other side. Um, when there's a rain cloud, the sun will always be behind. So yeah, I think that's one of my key key things I love about myself is how I can pick myself up when the times are low. Top man, that's that's class stuff, mate. Really, really enjoyed this chat. I hope I hope you have you have as well, mate. No, oh, thank you for having me on. Mate. I really appreciate. It. You know, obviously reached out on on the honest footballer because I do want to speak about it a lot more um, with people that you know, like mm. like you're doing football and feelings is you're you're opening players up, etc. And it's great to be on there. I really appreciate it. No worries at all. I'll put in the show notes. You'll be able to find links to uh, to go find all junior stuff. He's uh, the honest footballer. Search that on YouTube as well. Um, to the listener, thank you for joining me uh, on this episode. I'll see you again soon. Cheers. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.